Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Risk Biscuits. I'm Michael, your host. Uh, thanks again for tuning into the show. As always, please like and subscribe, share, all that sort of good stuff. All of your support helps uh, the channel and supports it going forward. Um, today, I've got a special guest. I'm excited for this one. Uh, Bisfam Green, uh, or better known, well, better known as Bisfam Green, but to people that know him well, Angus, get mate. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, good evening uh, from England, where it is a cold morning. Yeah, yeah. And good morning to you. Um, <laughs> look, I've, before we get into things, I'll I'll just uh, share something up on the screen just to sort of cover off on a couple of bases and make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, look, obviously, this conversation's really purposes, uh, all care, no responsibility, um, you know, we're not really in the business of providing financial advice to you. Um, we're just having a general chat if you're looking for financial advice for it. All right. So let's get into it. So I might sort of just kick off with, I guess, a little bit of a background about yourself and what I know about you. Obviously, we've sort of interacted over to, on Twitter over the years and, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, so you're a um, obviously come from a, an institutional background, but I believe trading mostly for yourself these days, um, or maybe, yep. you know, maybe a bit of both, that sort of thing. Um, but a sort of a bit of a specialist in terms of emerging markets and, and, and also bonds. Is that kind of a, a, a fair assessment of your background? Sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I never had any dreams of working in markets or anything like that. My background is as a geologist, bizarrely enough. Um, did a degree in geology, um, did the usual thing, applying to oil companies as you do. And um, I got a I got a place, which was quite impressive because at that time, the oil, this was 1998, the oil price was $10 a barrel. Um, yeah. But I decided I wanted to do a PhD, so I did a PhD in geophysics. I figured out that I was just a, a young guy, I was 21, and I could, you know, I had time to do something like this, even if it went nowhere, and I didn't need to uh, worry about that. So I did that. That was fun. Um, I've got to say, it was kind of a bit of a self-discovery time where I effectively worked out what my work ethos was like and what it took to kind of uh to get things done um and after that I realized I never wanted to stay in academia um I mean it is you know I have friends who are um it's uh it's it's fun I mean people do stuff that they love but um but at the end of the day you've got to go from funding round to funding round and you know there's never a lot of money and it seems that, you know, some people make it and they're great and they are the superstars. Uh, a lot of people don't. A lot of people are just basically, you know, hand to mouth going around looking for the next six months pot of money to uh, to live on. So mm. I figured I'd do something different. Uh, it was the time of the dot-com bubble. Um, but none of that stuff really apply, uh, appealed to me. Uh, I did apply to a couple of consultancy companies. Um, I don't think they exist anymore um, because of all that kind of stuff. Um, but I had a friend who worked with the same PhD supervisor as me, and uh, he got a job in fund management uh, in Edinburgh. Um, and it sounded interesting, and I just thought, well, let's give it a go. So I applied to a couple of companies, didn't get a, didn't get anywhere with some guys, uh, but I got a job in a uh, you know at a kind of an old old name kind of company in London, and uh, that's where it all began. And they told me yeah, I'd be cool. working in fixed interest. And I had no idea what fixed interest was. I just thought it was some spe special type of stock or equity or whatever you wanted to call it. Uh, and when I arrived, I kind of was shuffled into this, uh, into the kind of the nether part of the trading floor and uh, sat down with some guys who who uh, traded European government bonds. Okay. That's where it all began. Yeah, cool. So you you sort of walk in, all of a sudden you realize that you're going to be trading bonds. So what was, you know, obviously bonds are quite different to equities. So what was the kind of learning process around all of that and getting your head around what you're actually going to do? 
Well, I had no idea what a bond was. So that was that was a tough thing to begin with. I, I had I couldn't I, I remember initially wondering why on earth was there a thing called the yield and why wasn't that the coupon? Uh, it's just I mean, all sorts of things that now just seem extraordinary. Um, but you just pick them up, you know, and I, I think that, you know, the main thing about this is that, you know, you don't need to do a degree in something financial. Um, you know, you learn what you need to learn on the job. And, you know, if you're a, if you're a bit smart, you can kind of work it out um um so yeah so i was putting that kind of stuff and this was a time of course when european government bonds were pretty dull you know it wasn't long after everyone had gone into the euro spreads were mm -hmm. nothing i mean basically you know they'd be like well hey you know ireland is trading inside bonds and uh you know swap from austria 07s into into Netherland 08s and get a pickup of two basis points or something like that. I mean, it, this is really, you know, not a. It, it is. It was the definition of a pretty boring asset class, but that was kind of probably what I needed in in terms of just getting the basics. And the people I worked with were were good guys, and uh, they took the time to, you know, educate me and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and uh, that's that's where it all started. You know, uh, I went. The emerging markets department was next door. Uh, the woman who was head of emerging markets was also head of fixed income, and she obviously decided that she wanted me on her team. So she just poached me after uh, after about uh, eighteen months, and that was how I started in emerging markets. There was no no design, no nothing. It just just okay. that was just where I was put. Yeah, cool. All right. So you're all of a sudden, you've gone from a sort of a sleepy European desk to, you know, emerging markets, which, you know, tend to be a little bit more exciting and at least variable and that sort of thing. So what was that like? And I guess getting your head around all the different markets and different economies and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, at the, at the time, emerging markets was basically a dollar asset class. So, I mean, you know, People did do emerging market equities. In the firm I worked for, there were people doing emerging market equities, but we didn't sit anywhere near them. Um, I only got to know a couple of them because they were on the graduate program. Um, so it was basically just four PMs, and they variably talked to each other and didn't talk to each other and had their own clients that they jealously guarded. And uh, they all had their own styles. Um, some of it was extremely... Uh, uh, was eccentric, I would say, and uh, you know there was a there was an index, and things were vaguely close to the index, and they just, well, I mean, a lot of my memory is that there were, a lot of this stuff was just punting up and down, you know, taking a liquid bond, you know, Brazil C bond as it was as it was called then, which was something which came out of the uh, Brady bond restructurings in the nineties, and uh, that was something that that was possibly the most liquid thing in emerging markets. And I just remember that thing being punted up and down. And this was around the time when Brazil was going to default because Lula was being elected for the first time. And um, I remember my boss basically saying one day, last chance to sell Brazil. And, uh, and then of course, well, Lula came in, he didn't default and everything rallied. And that was really the kickstart of the, of the uh, love fest for emerging markets over the next 10 years. Um, and nothing could go wrong. It didn't matter how much of a basket case you were. Uh, it didn't matter how much you looked into the fundamentals of these things. Uh, the credit cycle, which of course, you know, got pretty crazy uh, later on. And uh, and the emerging markets, first for emerging markets, meant that the capital was just chasing this kind of stuff. So... Uh, it kind of taught me two things, one of which was that you can spend your time looking at the fundamentals. And of course, that was interesting. Uh, but, you know, if the overall market is pushing in one direction and the foes are flows of uh, favoring you, then these things don't matter. You know, the money just goes in. You know, we got to 2007, 2008, thing, you know, things as rubbish as like, you know, Ukraine and Venezuela were trading at 100, 150 over treasuries or over swaps, I should probably say. Uh, and simply, yeah. this was just flow-based. And of course, it was all the, uh, all the you know, the funky credit stuff that was happening at the same time as well. You know, all this stuff was being packaged up. Um, 
and this was just total garbage that people were buying and uh it was a great it was a really interesting time but it really i would say more than anything it really didn't teach me very much about emerging markets and how they were i wish yeah. i'd been there five ten years before when everything fell apart in the 90s because that was really you know that was a lot more about what what fundamentals mattered and uh, what it yeah. was all about yeah okay as opposed to just flows pushing us one way and structured yeah products. yeah that's right and you saw it after the financial crisis you know emerging markets got ripped apart in september october 08 but then you know china came in massive stimulus of course you know stimulus everywhere and it bounced right back and uh you know it was almost as if you know at the end of 2009 it was almost as if what happened in 2008 just hadn't happened at all i mean clearly there were some small guys who were completely screwed by what happened in 2008 and most of those were the ones in europe um, but generally for the big commodity exporters, you know, the names that you think about when you talk about emerging markets like Brazil or, uh, you know, Russia, South Africa, you know, it didn't matter. It didn't matter at yeah. all. It was like a blip. Yeah. Okay. So in hindsight, did you find you know, working on 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 a bond, obviously you sort of found it quite interesting, but in hindsight, is that kind of a more interesting space than say if you had been on an equities desk or something like that, do you, do you think, or? Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, I'd like, I'd like to say, yes, it, it is more, I mean, you know, emerging markets are, you know, they're very varied, um, but when it comes down to it, you know, the main drivers of, the dollar debt were the you know what's happening to treasuries and that was always been very important because for reasons you know the average duration of the emerging market index was pretty high so if treasury was doing well em would do well as well because a lot of em is investment grade a lot of it is 10 year 30 year debt um so that's a big driver and the second one is, is just credit spreads in general you know and this is probably something you could almost say about any, you know, form of investment grade credit or largely investment grade credit. You know, if spreads are tightening, then credit does well. And it doesn't really matter what you're invested in. And this is probably the same for, you know, US IG or European IG. Um, and even in, you know, for most of the time, that same same goes for um, high yield as well um, for the junk stuff. I mean, there's the stuff really at the bottom of the spectrum, which does its own thing. That's the Argentinas of the world. Um, but, yep. you know, even even some of the like double Bs, even single Bs, single Bs, most of the time, you know, when markets are doing, markets are okay, you know, this stuff is just trading in line with everything else. So, um, AEM equities, I think there is, a, there's a lot more room for, di for, um, for diversification. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot more, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this from a, pretty low level in terms of in terms of knowledge but i would imagine there's a lot more idiosyncratic stuff going on so yeah. you know you've got to get the company right you know it's not just about the country you've got to get the company right as well although of course you know things are pretty if the country gets pretty stressed then everything's going to be going down to hell in a handbasket altogether and then when it comes back it's all going to come back altogether as well so a bit less of that yeah, okay. um yeah yeah and then, uh, okay, so you're you're on that the EM desk, and then where to from there? Does that did you sort of finish your institutional career there, or do you move on? Or well, my um, a guy that I worked with very closely on the EM desk, who was always arguing with the the woman who'd hired me, he said that I should get out and go and get some experience outside the place that I was in. And his background was on the sell side; he was a, an economist. Uh, an, uh, an emerging markets economist and he said you should go to the south side that's where you're going to learn everything you need to know um so i left and uh i got a job um as a uh, as a research guy on the uh on the south side working in emerging markets and uh it, it's a it's a totally different job um but it's yeah. also great i mean i found working for the south side to be pretty it was invigorating, you know, every day you get in, you know, you're working long days. Uh, if you work in research, you've got to hang around at the end of the day to make sure everything's done and written up and whatever else. Um, but I'd be getting up, you know, five o'clock every day to get into work for seven or before seven morning meetings, 
And then there's the day you'd be talking to clients, you'd be talking to people on the trading floor, and then you'd be writing stuff as well. And it's just like a daily cycle. It'd be like, you get to the weekend, it'd be like, you know, I've got a two day holiday now. Um, whereas the buy side, and this of course won't be the instant case for, I'm sure for a lot of people, but it's pretty sleepy. You know, you go in one day is pretty similar to another day. Whereas on the sell side, every day was different. You know, there was some structure, but effectively you were doing your own thing with the name of your bank. And as long as you didn't do anything particularly stupid or say anything particularly stupid, then you could just do whatever you wanted to do. And, um, yeah, cool. you know, I like talking to clients. They like talking to me. It worked out. It worked out pretty well. Yeah, cool. So how long were you on sell side? Um, best part of probably seven years, eight years, something like that. Um, okay. So that was through the financial crisis, which was fun. I mean, it, at the time, it was all kind of a bit of a haze, and you didn't realize quite how existential it was. Um, but I saw some stuff going down that was pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, and then um, in some time after that, basically, I was hired by Emerging Markets Trading instead um, to to develop some products and also do some market making. And that's where I discovered that I was pretty terrible at market making. Um, I just didn't have the mind for it. And I think a lot of this comes down to it really is mindset. It's it's interesting. I watched one of your interviews um, and um, basically the guy, the guy said that it's a completely different mindset doing market making. You are the greengrocer on a stall or something like that. Basically it's all about inventory. It's all about managing your risk. It, whatever yeah. your view is, it doesn't really matter. You know, the fair value for the market is where the market is right now. And, you know, where where you think the market should be is completely irrelevant for most of your decisions on a daily basis. And I just found it impossible to separate those two things. So yeah, okay. um, effectively, market making was not for me. I mean, it was a great experience. Um, love working with the team, talking to the brokers, getting, you know, the information on the market. I loved, you know, showing markets and making markets. But in the end, I just couldn't handle the the risk management side of it. It just okay. wasn't something that I could do. Yeah, cool. Um, so, yeah, and the developing product stuff. I mean, I'll. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a complete disaster going into trading, but the whole developing product side. I mean, some of that stuff worked, and some of it didn't. You know, some of the you have some ideas and you package it up, and people do it, and it works out really well. Um, but then there was one thing, especially I tried to do related to inflation trading, which is something which can happen in some emerging markets and not others. And effectively you just got yourself, I got myself into a position where I had risks that I just actually couldn't hedge. Um, okay. and of course, when you're trying to develop something new, you know, there's no, you, you, know, you can't just call someone up and get, you know, unload some risk onto somebody else. You're, uh, yeah. you're basically on your own. And, uh, yeah, that was a learning experience. And uh, yeah, I, I tend to stay away from things that I can't either don't understand or can't hedge. I think if I did it now, I'd do it very differently. But then I was just way out of my depth. Um, yeah, okay. It's yeah, great. I mean, great. some things worked and that was fab, um, but some things just didn't work. And uh, yeah, you got to move on. Yeah. Yeah, but you got to sort of you got to go through the process, I guess, to figure that out. Otherwise, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've got to say, you know, they gave me the they gave me the chance. They gave me plenty of time to work it out. Um, unfortunately, it was a time after the financial crisis where balance sheet has has been constrained. I think it probably would have been different in the years up to the financial market, uh, up to the financial crisis, simply because the cost of hedging certain exposures would have been a lot lower. Um, but yeah, didn't work out. And uh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. You got to, you got to, you got to basically pull yourself together and move on into something else. Yeah, cool. So what was what was that something else from there? Um, so yeah, well, I moved back to the buy sides. Um, I basically went and worked for a more for a more boutiquey but emerging markets focused company. Um, and this was at the height of the emerging markets boom. So this was. Uh, 2011, 2012, 
kind of time. Huh? I mean, people were you you were being given money faster than you could actually invest it. It was ridiculous. Basically, everybody wanted huh? a piece of emerging markets. Um, Sounds awesome. Was, well, it well it was, and it also wasn't because, of course, if all the clients are piling in at the highs, <laughs> and then basically all the client meetings, and of course, you know, as much as the sell side is client meetings. Buy side is also client meetings. It's all about the clients. Um, you you give them the bad news. You know, basically the stuff that they bought um, has gone down. And uh, you try to paint a rosy picture. You say, well, you know, this happened, this happens, blah, blah, blah. We still believe in the asset class. We still believe in the fundamentals. But, you know, year after year, from 2011 onwards, I mean, basically emerging markets peaked in the first half of 2011. Okay. And um, <clears throat> that was the big, you know, the end of the big China stimulus. And then everything started, you know, basically the bottom started to fall out. You know, China starts to have its first problems. Um, clearly, the US went through this repeated cycle of trying to recover and then kind of failing and not achieving escape velocity, as I think Bernanke was Bernanke's uh, favorite uh, phrase. And, um, the you know, emerging markets are, it's it's all about growth. Basically, if there's no growth, then they're going to struggle. And uh, I mean, that's continued to this day, to be fair, because, you know, the dollar and the US has been the, has been the focus. Um, but, um, but yeah, we, it, it all it all just started to grind to a halt. And you saw the whole commodity super cycle thing just kind of ended. And, yeah. um, you know, the big emerging markets are all about commodities, you know, regardless of where you look, you know, Latin America is basically all commodity exporters, um, um, Russia, South Africa, most of, you know, the small African ones, if you're, if you can be interested in those. Uh, and then, you know, Indonesia being probably the biggest and most interesting Asian market as well. Uh, it's all commodities. You know, there are very few yeah. which do well when commodities are low, you know, Turkey's kind of one. But even then, you know, Turkey is is still pretty highly leveraged on the whole kind of growth idea and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, these guys were piling in in 2011, 2012. And then you've had, I mean, you've seen the charts. I mean, you can look at charts at the equities because it kind of tends to be more exaggerated because China's much bigger thing in there. But you look at charts of EM fixed income, you just need to pull up some sort of random ETF. Um, it's, um, it's, it's not a good story um yeah so by then i was working in emerging market local currencies which is a much bigger much more liquid asset class than in dollars clearly you're taking a lot more risk as a as an investor um but of course that was doubly hurt by this because um you know not only was the em growth story not there and that not supporting currencies but of course the us was also you know we've had a strong dollar cycle em currencies have generally depreciated against the dollar and um, yields haven't really compensated for that. So yep. clients have at best not really done anything at all. You know, if they just stayed in treasuries, they would have done better, I would say. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. all right. So, so it's, it's um, you know, I mean, again, I can't, you know, can't knock it too much. I mean, I love talking to the clients. I love telling the story. I love coming up with ideas. I loved, you know, my... Probably my USP is my attention to detail when it comes to the portfolio stuff and just basically getting everything in line, keeping everything in line with the risk that you want. Uh, you'd be surprised at the number of people who just can't be bothered to do that um, on the, uh, you know, on, on who really should. I mean, that's effectively your job. You're managing risk as a, as a fund manager. Um, but, you know, the asset class kind of, kind of soured i mean you've got some great stories you know you go to places and meet people and all that you know in in these emerging markets um you know whether they tell you anything that's actually useful or whether they tell you anything that's actually true is another matter but you still get to see how things are on the ground um so uh it's uh it's been a you know that was that was a that was a great experience but um it's uh you know things changed so uh at uh, a few years ago, basically, I was having yeah. having some personal issues, and um, as ever with these things, Christmas Day—I can't remember what year it was—my um, wife basically just said, "It's either us or your job," because uh, basically, I've just been living in denial of of uh, 
of things that were going on and uh, just throwing myself more and more into my job. And uh, yeah, right. And and of course, the job does that. Can you know you can spend as much time as you want. You know, you're talking to clients. You're kind of managing portfolios. You can you know you can you can do 24 hours a day if you really wanted to. And the uh, family was suffering. And when you're confronted with something like that, it's like, well, I've got to, I've got to take my foot off the, uh, I've got to, I've got to prioritize family. So I just, yeah, yeah. To, I just, jacked, I just walked away. Um, and it's biggest decision of my life. Um, in some ways, there wasn't a great deal of downside. My wife had a good job and she was looking after the kids. So basically we just switched roles. I just stayed at home, looked after the kids, and uh, she went to work, and uh, that's how it's been ever since. Yeah, cool. Yeah, good on you for making that decision, you know, like uh, kind of a big decision to make, but prioritise family, which is good. And so you're just taking care of the kids and trading your own money now? Is that kind of where you're at? Pretty much, yeah. Um, I mean, it it, it took me a, a while to yeah, cool. to get into it, um, the whole the whole trading thing. I, you know, I really thought that. Well, it's it's difficult to take that step, I suppose. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I tried a few bits and pieces, and of course, I always only tried emerging markets to begin with. Problem with EM is that it's you know, difficult to find the vehicles in which to go long at the best of times. And it's pretty much impossible to find any vehicles in which to go short. Um, yeah. So in the end, you, you kind of gravitate to other more liquid stuff. You know, there's, there's effectively, it's, it, you know, EM is my, is my first love. And if there was, a, if there's great opportunities, then I'll do something in it. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, the correlations are so high with most of the developed stuff anyway, that there's actually no point doing uh doing emerging markets on a day-to-day -day basis. It's uh yeah. it's uh it's it's interesting. And you know, I've got all my spreadsheets where I kind of keep all my information and stuff. Um and I, you know, I follow a lot a lot of what the goings are on 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 are there. But um it's it, uh you know a lot of it is academic. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, so so what markets are you kind of trading now? You're you're just trading like US and Europe mark European markets, or um, I mean, it was I had to lose a bit of money to begin with to kind of push me in a direction of trying to find some sort of edge. Um, yeah, you kind of think, oh well, this is going to be easy. I'm, I just need to you know lean into this. I'm a contrarian, um, so I have. You know, I like to grab falling knives. The thing is, is I needed to build a framework where I knew which knives to grab and which ones to avoid. Um, yeah. And um, and that's what has, you know, taken the time. So basically, I look at effectively at options markets. I look at the pricing of the option structure. And therefore, you need to look at liquid stuff. So basically, it's where I can get prices. I can get full runs of, of strikes in 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 various markets so basically it's g10 fx or g7 fx or whatever we want to call it it's not many g's anymore i don't think uh it's yep. stocks basically mostly developed markets or only developed markets and uh some commodities um and some of it leads yeah. into em so you know take your own currency uh the aussie i mean i would say that's probably the most em thing that i look at I mean, it's certainly, you know, being a commodity exporter, you certainly have a lot of the characteristics of that. Um, so I can use that as a bit of a, yep. you know, a hunch as to where the where the cash is going. You know, if Aussie is doing well, then it's likely the Rand is going to be doing well, Brazilian Real, blah, blah, blah. Um, but um, but most of all, you know, I just I've just had to change my focus and uh and and yeah, um, okay. all these things trade. And then so with with the trading that you're doing at the moment, like what's the, what's your kind of thought process around, you know, a new trade or a new investment? If you, is it modern model driven or is it discretionary? Um, I, 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 two things at two different like levels. How are you, I guess, making, 
Yeah. Um, it's at two different levels. Um, in terms of the real money side, so just you know, money rather than leverage, it comes down to a question of basically bonds versus stocks. And I mean, I know that's that's boring and it's kind of a very kind of real money way of way of looking at it. Um, and of course, in the real money way of looking at it in the old world is that stocks were what you were invested in 90% of the time. And then bonds were just there to be the cash substitute and were there to do nothing um, uh, or act as a bit of diversification. But I do try and flip between the two. And my main view is, you know, is my, well, is my Twitter tagline. It's about growth. You know, if growth is looking up, then you want to be in stocks. And if growth is looking down, then you want to be in bonds. And uh, that's a very broad brush, high level thing. And that's basically how I manage the real money side um in a way mm -hmm. so at the moment i'm basically in cash <laughs> i've been in cash for quite a long time actually um i just can't you know u.s growth has been decelerating for you know a couple of years well actually it hasn't really global growth has been decelerating for two or three years now u.s growth has kind of been holding up which has been reasonably frustrating um but um you know I, I don't see I don't really want to change that. I don't see I want to see the growth cycle turn up if I'm going to go back into stocks. Um, okay. In terms of model driven stuff, I basically look at uh, things such as, uh, you know, the 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 skew, the put call skew in, um, in on option structures, I look at the level of vol. And I have a, you know, a smaller thing, um, which I do on using leverage stuff using options. It's just selling options when I want to lean into something one way or the other way. I have a bunch of thresholds. I've got a load of historical data that I've been collecting and I basically just look at, you know, the the thresholds where I want to to lean one way or the other. Um okay. works works pretty well in FX. Um it works reasonably well in commodities, although clearly, you know, commodities can go a bit wild at times. Um, and of course if you're selling options, then you need to watch out for that doesn't work at all in stocks and i've okay. never worked out why it just doesn't just doesn't and I, I i'm guessing it's because there is a whole industry of people who do this do things with the vol structure and stocks and that therefore has some way of altering the structure in a way that i just don't understand or the way it behaves differently to other markets but it's just i've had some costly encounters with scott stocks over time in terms of trying to fade things one way or the other and yep. uh, no, I just don't do that. I just, you know, yeah, okay. I can have a view, but, um, and I might take a punt here or there, but in general, it just doesn't seem to work. Yeah, fair so, enough. Yeah. And then, um, so while well, I've got you and it's kind of timely, you know, US CPI is going to be announced, you know, a couple of hours after this. Um, is being recorded and you know there's a lot of kind of debate in the world at the moment around the US and soft landing and or not and how many rate cuts we'll get this year and will we get any that sort of thing where just your sort of comment earlier about you know global growth and US growth holding up where do you kind of sit on in which camp around where the global economy is heading you know where the US is heading rate cuts all that sort of stuff well, I mean, the first thing to say is that me, like a lot of people, <clears throat> spent the last 12 months at least being pretty wrong um, about the US. Um, I pre I basically thought that, you know, Fed would hike a few times and the whole economy would just collapse like a, like a house of cards or one of those collapsible stools or something like that. And that's just not happened. And yep. I mean... There's some compelling reasons why, you know, fiscal, for instance, has been very favorable in the US. And you can compare the US to other countries around the world where, you know, you've had some, well, basically a lot of places have been in recession over the course of the past 12 months, but it just hasn't mattered. You know, the US is the, whenever you have a view on global macro, the US is the is the elephant in the, is well, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but the US is the elephant in the room. And if the US isn't going to is isn't going to go well or go badly, then that's basically going to take the steam out of everything else in either direction. Um yep. so effectively the US has held up very well. And uh, that's meant that everybody everything else hasn't collapsed into something awful. 
Um, but also everything else hasn't managed to drag the US down. And you can see this, you know, I mean, China, China's struggling massively because of what's happened. I mean, I think China's probably, you know, into a decade long um, hangover from the property uh, property boom. Um, but even that hasn't really mattered, to be honest. I mean, China is a bit more separated from everything else because of the capital controls. Um, but, you know, it is also a big animal and it should make a difference, but it just doesn't seem to be doing that at the moment. So um, so this year, I mean, I think we're still into the whole long and variable lags thing, but, um, and of course, the one thing we've got to say is that, you know, that works both ways. So after hiking, there's a lag, but also after cutting, there's a lag as well. So the Fed will cut this year. I'm pretty, pretty certain they will. Um, it's pretty clear that inflation pressures have, diminished very significantly i think it's not clear whether the us is going to go straight into something much much lower inflation than we had um than we've had for the past couple of years i mean clearly you know the previous decade we had no inflation at all so i mean but of course people's people's views on that have changed um so i don't know how much they will but the speed is going to be governed by whether they feel they have to and at the moment, of course, the economy is fine. So I would say that to a degree they're cutting because they can or because it would be nice to rather than because they have to, which means that there's no there's no need for speed. Um, yep. So in order for them to, you know, we've gone into this year with a lot of cuts priced. Um, I think for that to be realized, something bad needs to happen to to risk to force the Fed to do something rather more rather quicker or the data's got to roll over or something like that, or both. Um, so if that happens, of course, then rates are going to go down 200, 300 basis points. We're probably going to get a massive bounce in risk after that. Um, but I'd be you know, reasonably cautious right now. Either interest rates are going to go up um, in the market, you know, Fed interest rates aren't going to go up, um, and that's going to have an impact on everything. Or um, or something bad has to happen, which is going to drive interest rates and force the Fed to cut rates significantly. I just don't see there being much of a middle way. Um, mm. I remember another one of your talk to you, your calls you were talking about, you know, you want to reset and everything to basically just reset to how it was before COVID and before all of the craziness the last few years. I don't think that's going to happen. Or at least yeah. that yeah. that's not going to happen without something tremendously awful happening. So you know it's yeah it, crazy things are going to keep happening um yeah on the good side and on the bad side until the music stops um so yeah so i think the fed probably will cut um i mean you get drawdowns in markets every so often so i i i just think that if that's nicely timed with inflation being low as it is and of course growth still moderating as it is then that's going to basically lead the Fed to doing more. And then we could could get a nice kind of reflationary uptick after that. I think that's probably the best way of doing it. I think this year is possibly down and then up, um, maybe up a lot. Um, the only thing, the only thing, the unknown, and I haven't seen anyone opine on this at all. Um, of course, normally people are all over this, is what on earth happens with the US election at the end of this year? Because the thing that's held growth together has been fiscal policy and yeah. you know biden has not really you know there, there's been no moves but from the democratic administration to tighten things up in any way at all from a fiscal perspective um what happens after november especially in 2025 i've got no idea at all and I, I haven't seen anyone have any opinions about this whatsoever um but it's pretty clear that the u.s can't go on running you know, five, ten percent of GDP fiscal deficits forever without having some sort of impact on something. Or and if they stop doing that, then that's going to have a pretty horrendous impact on growth. So, you know, I'm trying to keep things before the election because I have no idea what's going to happen after the election. Absolutely nothing at all. No idea. Yeah, I feel like the elections like this big sort of big unknown that everyone's kind of ignoring and you know because you know the, half the world's kind of terrified that trump will get back in and the other half of the world sort of wants him back in and 
you know, uh, it's just US politics is just a disaster. So, you know, everyone's kind of ignoring it until it's like right in front of us. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And um, I think that the the big the big test, I mean, if we talk about the Magnificent Seven, is anyone going to go after them? You know, there'll be, I can imagine it's a pretty easy political move to make. Just say, you know, start talking about these big tech guys that are making all the money. You know, clearly at the moment, everything's kind of good. doesn't really matter. But all it takes is things to be slightly less good. And you can start to see the, you know, people running after the, the Silicon Valley um, guys and saying, hey, we want a bit of this or you guys are a monopoly. We're going to break you up. You know, I, I that's where the politics has an impact. Um, mm. And pretty, no politician wants to vote for tighter fiscal policy and making people unhappy and a recession or whatever else. But, nah. you know, they would vote for breaking up big companies and saying the American, you know, the American taxpayer should be getting something out of this or whatever else. Yeah, yeah, fair comment. Uh, all right, so... You know, we kind of talked a lot about your your past and you know what you're sort of doing these days and that sort of thing. And one one comment you made just around China and obviously that's a bit of a basket case this year and well not just this year, probably last couple of years and um a comment that they're on a sort of a ten year workout. Is that sort of your view that China's just gonna be this elephant in the room for the next decade? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, yep. it's you look at the um, investments to GDP numbers that we've had a decade ago, and um, it's really high. You know, basically they were throwing money at all sorts of projects, all sorts of stuff. You know, you have that ridiculous statistic where you know China used more concrete in 2011 than the US used for the entire 20th century. There's just been a whole festival of bad investments in China. And um, this stuff just doesn't doesn't work out quickly. You know, whether this is a Japan style 20, 30 years of, you know, stasis or whether it's a European style blow up, because, of course, we had something similar happen uh, in the, you know, some of the more peripheral Eurozone economies in the run up to the uh, in run up the credit crisis. I don't know. I mean, I think Europe is still working through a lot of this stuff. I think that's the reason why Europe kind of sucks from many investment perspectives at the moment. And it may well continue for another decade in Europe. I don't know. Um, but these things take a long time to work out. You know, even even in the best circumstances, even in places where you have, you know, there's no social fragmentation or anything like that. You know, Japan. Japan is, you know, you, you had the peak in 1990 and we're kind of getting back to that now. I mean, that's like, you know, the best part of most of our lives. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's it these things can take a very long time so yeah so we we can't expect anything from china that's a problem for emerging markets because of course you know commodity exporters blah 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 um for developed markets i mean i think it's it enters more the political dimension you know how does china's going to have to change itself to respond to this kind of stuff and how's that going to work is it going to lead to more you know more of this issue, more of these issues with globalization that we've been seeing and whatever else you know china starts to take itself away maybe from uh from from this stuff uh you know i i don't know these are geopolitical ramifications that are beyond anything that i would ever ever work out but you know they they they're big enough to look after themselves but they they don't at the moment they're not big enough to sort out the the problem that they have at home and they may not be for a long time Mm -hmm. I'm a, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm kind of a, of a similar view. I mean, not that I'm a China expert or anything, but it's obviously been, you know, Australia's benefited quite a bit over the last, you know, decade or so with everything that's been going on in China and all of the investment and that sort of thing. And it seems to be unwinding. And as you say, you can't sort of solve these issues quickly. So you're probably, you know, and they're at a point where they can't just re- you know, reinflate and start all over again. So, no, they can't. Not... They can't. Yeah, but yeah, uh, Australia is somewhere where I'm. I'd be pretty negative about, but there, you know, Australia is 
you know, there's a whole bunch of countries that have, you know, floated on the back of China, you know, pretty much all of Latin America, you know, with all the hard commodity exports, ditto South Africa, you know, a lot of the African countries as well. You've got to work out, you know, if China pulls back from an awful lot of this stuff, it's going to, I mean, it's not going to have an impact on China. It's going to have an impact on these countries. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to construct anything particularly positive from that perspective. And therefore, when you're looking for things to turn, I mean, this has been the cycle of the US. The US has dominated everything for the last 15 years. The dollar has appreciated and it will continue to do so until this cycle ends. Uh, big tech is the same. You know, you, you read all this stuff about how oh, it's the time for the Russell. No, it's not. It really isn't. You know, this is just, you know, this is just hope. You know, this is just active managers hoping for some, you know, people all piling into energy because energy ETFs are cheap relative to tech. You know, that's not going to end until the cycle ends. And the US yeah. performance is not going to end until the cycle ends. But then you think, well, next cycle, you know, where do I want to be? I mean, Europe, is Europe still going to be working through all this rubbish from the Eurozone crisis? I mean, maybe. Um, I mean, I would, I mean, I think everyone would say, hey, Japan. But the problem, of course, with Japan is that its neighborhood is China. And there's a lot of economic linkages there, which aren't going to be particularly helpful. So I'm kind of scratching my head. It's not going to be the US. You know, all these metrics about how the US equity market is three standard or four standard deviations of where it should be from fair value from all the other equity markets are true. Um, you know, and on a, on a time scale of a decade, being short the US and long everything else is going to be a good thing to do. Um, but it's not going to end today or tomorrow. Um, it's, uh, you know, looking for the next big thing is is kind of tough at the moment. But then again, I suppose it always is. So, you know, that's, yeah, what, we're, that's, what, just... that's what we paid the big bucks for, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it'll just pop up out of left field, you know, like it won't be something that we're planning for. It'll just be some obscure thing that all of a sudden the, there's enough of a change and enough money moves around that all of a sudden the party stops and... Yeah. We're back to the drawing board. Yeah. All right. So let's, you know, like let's lighten the mood a little bit. We've both been getting a bit pessimistic on the on the <laughs> on the outlook there. Um maybe just, you know, just uh one of the things that's helpful, just like I guess you like your best investment, your worst investment, and you know, what you learned from them over the years, whether that's since you've been trading your own money or whether that's stuff that you store in, in your institutional days, whatever you, you want to riff about. Yeah. Um, I mean, so many bad things to choose from. I mean, it, you know, they all get imprinted on your heart, in your brain. Um, I mean, uh, it's for me, the biggest problem I had, I mean, as I said, with the, um, market making thing is just detaching my my view from you know what i what i should do you know in terms of i'm very i'm very i've got to take my heart out of the what the brain is deciding to do or uh, you know put it another way in my head i will have a view of how what things are going to happen and uh and i will try and construct a view around that and then basically you know for whatever reason that will be the wrong view might ultimately be the right view, but it, uh, for the time to be the wrong view. So, for example, 2019, um, basically, you know, global economy was nicely rolling over in, you know, basically we got the peak of the cycle was probably middle of 2018. Um, you know, you short stocks and, of course, everything falls apart at the end of 2018. And then the Fed cut rates and, you know, you know, I went into 2019 short stocks and that was just the wrong thing to do. You know, it's, uh, you know, growth didn't improve because the Fed cut rates, but of course the Fed just cut and that was enough in the in the ZERP environment that we had to uh, to make everything, to buoy everything up again. And uh, uh, that was that was a pretty costly thing for me. Um, I managed to, you know, rally round and, have the same view again going into 2020, which proved to be 
incredibly lucrative and that's probably worst trade to yeah. best trade in the space of 12 months um basically i underestimated the impact of the fed cuts at the end of, at the beginning of 2019 and then i got covid right uh and that's probably one of my that's probably my greatest strength is that when i see something changing or something going wrong i I recognize that for what it is. And it may be that because I've got my models and I kind of see things that are happening that aren't really in line with what should be happening, but you can see something change. And COVID was something that, you know, I, I, I something had to happen. This cycle was still coming to an end. Um, and uh, of course, I didn't expect there to be a global pandemic, but when that began, it was like, well, okay, everything, you know, we're going to go into hell in a handbasket here. And uh, that's, exactly what it proved to be um but that yeah, time okay. in 2020 having learned from my experience in 2019 when the fed came along and did what they did when you know the u.s administration came along and did what it did then i made sure i was on the right side of the trade so actually the most pleasing thing for me um was what happened when the market was going up 2020 going into 2021 was just like you know I'm a contrarian guy. What happened with COVID was great. Don't get me wrong. But frankly, that's what I should do. Whereas what happened in 2020 is going to 2021 was, you know, I, I'm terrible at taking off, taking profits early. And uh, I didn't that time. And that worked out really well for me. I was um, yeah, very pleased about just getting the risk on. I'm, I'm not... I'm not someone who likes to have be long risk when everyone else is going gangbusters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But good thing um, you kind of recognize that. You go. I, I was just going to say, it's good that you kind of recognize the change from 19 to 20 and obviously COVID and you're sort of short into COVID. And then as soon as the you know cuts come, you sort of learnt from your prior errors, which is a good thing. Um, we've all got the errors as long as you learn from them. I guess there's some purpose to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. So it's just, uh, but the other main thing for 2019 was just learning that when the situation changes, you've got to, you've got to change as well. You know, regardless of what your backdrop view is, it's the end of the cycle, growth is slowing down, blah, blah, blah. That can be right. But, it doesn't have to be right for a certain three month or six month period or something like that. You've got to just get it. Uh, you've got to, you, you just got to change or hold back. Just wait, just wait for something. You know, the other thing I've learned over the years is that there's always time. There's always time to put on a view. Um, if something's going to happen or something's going to change and something's going to go wrong, you know, you're not going to wake up on Monday morning and the entire world has collapsed. Um, I mean, that might happen in some random emerging market where, you know, the central bank closes the banking sector or something like that. But at a global level, that's not going to happen. There's always going to be view. And the, the problem with that is, is that you look back through time and people show pictures of 2008 or 1987 or blah, 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 blah. And it all looks very quick. <laughs> you know, you look at the, the chart goes straight down. After years of like slow of going up very very slowly up the staircase, you know the falling down the elevator takes no time at all. Um, but when you're actually there and when you're actually doing it, it does take a long time. Okay, 1987 it didn't, but you know 2008 took a year or more than a year to kind of work out. And yeah, there were some pretty hairy times, but you know the money was made not in those massively hairy times. It was made at the other times, and so that that's it. You don't need to be prepared. You don't need to have your stock of put options hedging you against all sorts of events and something like that. When something comes along and causes a massive problem, it's going to be really obvious when it does. And it's just yeah. a, the very fact that people get caught out is a measure of the hubris and uh, um, complacency that's out there rather than the fact that these things are, aren't obvious because they are obvious when they, when they come out and you do have time to respond. Um, so you don't need to be, ready with your you know with your uh portfolio hedge immediately it's uh yeah you know, okay yeah that's a good comment actually yeah sometimes uh, i wake up at night and think 
you know, I sort of sometimes I wake up at night and think, geez, I've got a lot of risk on here. And, you know, what if it all, the wheels all fall off on Monday or, you know, tomorrow or whatever. But when, when you say that, it, you're right. Like even COVID, like, although that was pretty quick, um, it was also quite slow. Like there was a, quite a bit mm. of build up to it and there was plenty, plenty of time to sort of become aware that this was becoming an issue and make adjustments and that sort of thing. That's right. It's it's just the the problem is it's a matter of distinguishing between what is just people screaming about headlines that are actually very important and what is actually something that's going to that's going to change the world and make a big difference. And uh, mm. I guess that that's that's the skill. But um, but yeah, it's um, I mean I as I said I spend a lot of time looking at options. You know, at times when volatility is high, that's great. You know, you can sell options all day long you make lots of money generally when you buy options you lose money and it gets to times like this you know the one that we're currently in and probably quite a lot of time over the course of the past two or three years vol is low and has come down a lot you know vol is very very low in stocks and it's also low in uh, currencies it's a bit higher in fixed income but it's not massively it's not off the charts you know my my main way of doing that is, you know, you've got to express you. You can't sell vol anymore. Right? Well, I mean, people do, of course, but I can't because that's just the way that I'm made. Um, so you've got to start thinking about where do I buy vol? Where do I put put on, uh, you know, long options positions? And the problem is, is most of the time you just lose money. <laughs> so, you know, I've come out of a year, 2023, where I've just spent money on options and, those options haven't paid out. It's kind of very frustrating. Um, but I know that if I just, you know, keep doing that, then at some point something's going to work. And uh, secondly, opportunities do come along where you can sell vol. Things will blow up very quickly in a short space of time, and you can just yeah. you can just fade that. It's uh, there's always time. There's always another trade. If you miss the trade, don't try and jump onto it. Um, be late thinking this is the only chance I'm ever going to make money ever again, because that something else will always come up. You know, there's always, there's always going to be something in somewhere. Um, so you don't need to chase stuff. And, uh, and secondly, at times where you're just sitting around doing nothing, trying a bit of this, trying a bit of that, and nothing's working, you know, at some point that will change as well. You know, don't get frustrated. Mm. Don't start trading much bigger hopefully to pick something up don't trade don't change what you do because that's not going to work i mean i've tried that and that definitely doesn't work so um yeah you just gotta you just gotta wait and the hardest thing with markets is waiting while everyone else is cheering and saying oh yeah you know i made loads of money and this and that and the other you just gotta sit back and the hardest thing to do is to do nothing <laughs> yeah it's hard wait it's it's a waiting man's game but we're all kind of impatient where i am anyway yeah, no, no, um, we, we, all are. we all are. We sit there every day and look at the screens. The best thing yeah. to do is just turn off the screens and go outside and do something else or learn to play the piano or whatever. Yeah, that's no fun. Though. <laughs> um, so, all right. So just, I guess, any advice that you'd give to anyone who's just sort of getting into markets, trying to figure out what's going on and, you know, find their sort of place in, in the world, what, what would you sort of, what's the best place for people to start to get their head around? what this is all about um i mean you've got to i mean this this is a this is a a, a, a a much misused phrase or not misused phrase but it's too it's a trope that's just used all the time you've got to find your edge um i mean i i have a good idea what my edge is there are times where i veer off the beaten track and i always just have to get back onto it because I've got bored and I want to do something else and it just never seems to work. You've got to be consistent. You know, you've got to realize what you're good at and what you can do and just do that and uh, try to avoid all the temptations of this and that and the other. And, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't normally do this at this time, but I've got no positions on right now because I don't see anything. So maybe I'll just try this because somebody else is doing it. That, you know, don't do that. Don't get distracted. Um, but the second thing is, and this is probably goes further into um uh in into you know more general portfolio management, people should spend more time looking after their investments. I mean, I find it absurd that 
you know, we're all effectively saving for our retirement or whatever else. I mean, if that's ever going to come, I've got no idea, um, given, you know, what's happening to savings and retirement rates and whatever else. But, you know, people just put money away and don't even think about it. And there's somebody somewhere who's taking, you know, some basis points every single year from that for managing it or not managing it or whatever, just sitting on it. And, you know, some of these things you've got to pay, you've got to pay for custody and whatever else. But a lot of this stuff, you know, these tracker funds, not even tracker funds, but, you know, actively managed funds, they're just taking money out of people's accounts and people just don't think about it because, you know, it's for the retirement, it's for a long time in the future. Whereas if you took over the management of it yourself, you'd save a bit of money, might learn a bit. And, uh, you know, you're not going to be paying the man money year in, year out. You know, your money might go up, or down, but their money only ever goes up because they're just taking a fixed proportion of your savings. So, you know, it's not just about the kind of leverage stuff, the day-to-day -day stuff that we look at. It's also about these pots of money that we have and um, you should be looking after those as well. So, you know, if if you just got to stick it in some index fund, fine, but it's better that you stick it in an index fund and pay the small fee for the index fund then you pay somebody else to stick it in an index fund for you because then you're losing money in the index fund and you're losing money um, just delegating that process to somebody else who probably doesn't have as much clue as you. And certainly because it's not their money, they care about it a lot less than you do. Yeah, fair uh, point. That's my gripe. I mean, I, I find, you know, the best jobs in financial markets are the ones where you're paid to manage somebody else's money because you know, it doesn't matter how good or bad you do, you still get paid. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I've, I've done the whole managing other people's money thing. It's great. You know, I'm good at presenting myself. I'm good at doing the chat, but would, you know, would I make you money? Well, you know, maybe a small degree away from 50, 50%, but you know, you might be better at doing it yourself. Yeah. Fair point. Is there anything sort of any sort of final thoughts that you wanted to share or, or anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to kind of talk about? Um, my mate, I mean, I mean, I've been quite negative. I'm, I always struggle to be positive. It's because I started off in, in fixed income in government bonds and you, you join an asset class where everybody believes government bonds are expensive. I mean, this is why we've had a 40 year bull market in government bonds is because everybody believe yields will go up because you know this was ridiculous and new and whatever else so i've always grow, grown up with the idea that the asset class is over any asset class is overpriced uh and i have to fight against my my bearish instincts with that but my main concern from a market perspective is not you know markets there'll always be opportunities things will go up things will go down blah 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 is um is is your broker and, you know, this is this is the thing. I mean, these are, you know, clearly we had the big one of the biggest brokerages go bust in 2008. But I'm talking about retail. You know, we are very reliant on these these people who have our money. And now, of course, it doesn't have to be an FDX type scenario where someone runs off with your money or gives it away in political donations. Um, you know, effectively, a broker is uh, is a has a portfolio of credit. You know, they lend, they're lending money to thousands of retail investors. And we know that a lot of these bets are correlated. And uh, the thing that keeps me up at night more than anything else is that, you know, my bearish bets <laughs> won't pay out because my broker will go bust. And um, that's the thing that really, that that's the thing that really, screws me up more than anything else you know i don't yeah, markets okay. go up markets go down countries go up countries go down um but um you know being being unable to access your funds um or the or your broker basically because you're effectively lending them money by putting their stuff on margin with them and they're lending it back to you against your margin it all gets kind of very circular that's the thing that i that you have to watch out for. now clearly you don't need to go as far as me. You know, I keep my margin levels very low. I basically get margined all the time and have to put more money in when things go badly um, because I try to keep things very tight. I don't want to have much exposure to a broker and that's a pain in the neck. But um, yeah, people should yeah, um, 
be aware of that. That's uh, that's a, that is a non-market market risk that we're all taking that we don't necessarily think about. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and it's not something that people think about day to day. Uh, more so in crypto, but certainly less so in sort of traditional finance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, don't I mean, know how these are though. these are uh, you know these are tail risks, very, very, very small tail risks. But um, you know that's uh, that will be a bummer. And you know you've seen people lose out in FTX. Now, clearly, as I said, that's because of a someone being a bad person. But um, you know, it's uh, it's there are. You know there are ways that you, you you can have to protect yourself in some way. So whether you can hedge your against your broker by selling their stock, I mean I think that's the case. You can do that with some, but then you have to do that with the different broker. So um, yeah, it's uh, brokers all the way down. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, anyway, look, I, I'll try to I'll try to be more positive if we ever speak again. <laughs> you haven't been that negative but i think i would describe you which is the most important thing so um but look thanks very much for coming on the show i've i've actually really enjoyed it it's been really good to talk good um thanks everyone for listening and watching. um i really appreciate your support yeah, thanks again, mate. And uh, for everyone, we'll see you next time. Cool. Peace. Thanks very much, Michael.